Introducing the all-new line of Magnus Mobile Bumper Stickers. Show off your more thoughtful side with these brain-teasing bumper stickers. Such classics as... Have you hugged your snot-nosed Ritalin junkie today? Honk frantically if you're a violent sociopath. I'm the proud parent of a blue-blooded legacy child with mediocre grades. If this van's a rockin', I'm probably deflowering your teenager. My other car also compensates for an unattractive wife. Honk if you're trapped in a loveless marriage. All of these and hundreds more are available for a limited time only. Magnus Mobile Bumper Stickers. Buy some. studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and a while back I talked about Lord of the Rings. And specifically what I talked about was the fact that for a long time, I just didn't really get Lord of the Rings. And not to completely repeat everything that I said before, but basically what it really came down to was... I guess I wasn't really interpreting Lord of the Rings the way that I should have been, the way that I'm guessing most of you interpret it, right? Which is to say, Lord of the Rings, I mean, yes, on the one hand, it has a story, but there's a degree to which Lord of the Rings isn't really a story unto itself. It's more that Lord of the Rings is part of a history. And so because of that, all of this in some cases, just an extremely didactic detail of, you know, this family tree or, or, or this little nugget of history or this fucking guy's myriad aliases and other names, you know, Mithrandur, Gandalf, all his other friggin' names and stuff that he's, that he's got. All of these things are basically part and parcel of the tapestry, the history of Middle-earth. And so for... Like I say, as obvious as that might have been to some of you, it's like it just didn't really sink in with me, is what I'm saying, right? And so, because of that, you know, I guess sort of unlocking that kind of allowed me a little bit more of an entree into the legendarium, you know, the Lord of the Rings and all that stuff. And so the promise that I made you guys was... And really, it's not like it has direct implications on Trinus Magnus Punch's reality. 
at least not necessarily. But basically what I promised you guys was that I was going to rewatch the Lord of the Rings movies, the theatrical cuts, though, because, I mean, history or not, and whether I appreciate it or not, there's only so much even I can take, you know? So rewatch the theatrical versions of the films and also start reading the Lord of the Rings uh, books and then finally maybe just to wash it all down also read The Hobbit and so that was basically the plan and I would say I've been reasonably successful with that so far but it ended up getting a little bit derailed that little uh, fanboy muse I suppose ended up getting a little bit derailed because I fell ass backwards into a fan edit of the Hobbit trilogy, by which I mean the movie trilogy for the Hobbit, the book, right? Peter Jackson directed three movies about what is, when you really think about it, a very small book, right? And so ended up coming across a fan edit, like I say, of of the Hobbit films, and it's basically all three films distilled into one film and the shtick of it is it is way 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 cut down you know as compared to what you saw in theaters all of these movies you know it's something like nine hours or something like that worth of movies basically more than half is basically on the cutting room floor so to speak right and so that is the the uh, fan edit that I found. This is called The Hobbit, the Tolkien edit. And I'm just going to read you a little bit of the guy's little spiel here. Basically, he starts off by saying in big block letters, I have recut Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy into a single four-hour film. And then his actual sort of... in He gives off a few examples of stuff that got cut out. And <clears throat> what he, um, among other things, what he mentions is uh, the stuff that was cut, what he mentions is the investigation of Dol Guldur has been completely excised, including the appearances of Radagast, Saruman, and Galadriel. This was the most obvious cut and the easiest to carry out. Open parentheses. A testament to its irrelevance to the main narrative. Close parentheses. Like the novel, Gandalf abruptly disappears on the borders of Mirkwood and then reappears at the siege of the Lonely Mountain with tidings of an orc army. <sighs> Let's see. From there, uh, the another thing that he mentions is uh, the prelude with old Bilbo is gone. As with the novel, I find the film works better if the scope starts out small, open parentheses, in a, in a cozy hobbit hole, close parentheses, and then grows organically as Bilbo ventures out into the big scary world. It's far more elegant to first learn about smog from the dwarves. Haunting ballad, open parentheses, rather than a bombastic CGI sequence, close parentheses. The prelude undermines the real and present stakes of the story by framing it as one big flashback. And anyway, so it goes off from there and there are some other things. But really, I mean, those were the two main cuts that kind of stood out to me. And the reason for that is because the Hobbit movie with which I am most familiar is An Unexpected Journey, the first of the trilogy, right? And I've seen the others and, you know, whatever, but that's the one, you know, An Unexpected Journey, that's the one that I'm actually the most familiar with. And so those two cuts were actually the ones that really stood out the most. And I don't know if I've actually ever come right out and said so, on mic on my show before but I'm really not much of much of a fan of fan edits and the reason for that is because you know whether you like a movie or whether you hate a movie you need to give the director his due you know he's the one that's telling the story and so you know you can like a film or you can dislike a film but I just kind of have philosophical and creative problems with in effect, taking the film out of his hands and cutting it up to your satisfaction, the way that you think it should be done. And this is in spite of the fact that you didn't write the script, you didn't, let me think, you didn't uh, participate in casting sessions to find actors, you didn't put up money 
so that the movie can actually fucking be made. You didn't... I mean, the list of things that you didn't do and you have absolutely no control over or artistic input into, it's just fucking staggering. So, you know, who do you think you are, you know, to basically take somebody else's art, whether you like that art or not, take somebody else's art, run it through your little hack job editing software, and then you get to say that you're creative, you know, or that you're, you're just fuck whatever, you know? And honestly, I think maybe the worst offender when it comes to this sort of bullshit has got to be, without question, Magnolia fan. I mean, that guy has hacked up more movies than I'm probably ever going to live to watch, you know? And so all of this is sort of a preamble into saying, I actually happen to think that The Hobbit, the Tolkien edit, is actually worth watching. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a long movie. It's four some odd hours long. So this is, you know, it's a little bit of a slog. I'm not going to lie to you. But what this thing does is, instead of this being sort of an ensemble type of film, which is sort of what it had to be in order to be spread across three three-hour movies, <clears throat> it actually narrows the focus right back down and puts it on Bilbo Baggins, you know? And basically the sort of the arc that he goes through on, you know, from the beginning of the story until the very end of it. And I gotta tell you, it works. It's not perfect. Look, I'll be the first to admit, this is just from a technical standpoint, the presentation of this movie has some problems. You know, I don't think the video quality is everything it could be. And if you pay attention to like the top of the screen, you know, like the top of the frame, it's like the very top of the frame, it's like it's got jitters or something. I don't know, you know, what the hell that's about, but um, the edits aren't really as smooth as they might've been in a few places, which honestly, for all I know, that could have been completely unavoidable. I mean. The Tolkien editor may have had absolutely no choice except to have those cuts be as rough as they are, you know. So, you know, all of that stuff, you know, it's like any fan edit, you know. It's not necessarily going to be perfect. But if you just try to move away from those things and just kind of, you know, think about this thing as shining the spotlight directly on Bilbo Baggins, which what little I ever read of the book that's what the book did, you know? And this, I gotta tell you, it's... It actually works really well. And it, in a weird kind of way, it sort of addresses a gripe that I had with at least an unexpected journey in as much as it starts off with Ian Holm playing Bilbo and then Elijah Wood playing Frodo he has a little cameo appearance you know he has his little moment and then you know wanders off and you know what you eventually infer is that this actually takes place at the beginning or actually just before the the stuff in the Shire from Fellowship of the Ring this was basically the 10 or 15 minutes before we we get our first glimpse of uh, Frodo Baggins in in uh, Fellowship of the Ring right and it basically turns The Hobbit as a story into a prequel to Lord of the Rings. And The Hobbit is not a prequel, right? Now, some of you are crying bloody murder over that because you're thinking to yourself, well, The Hobbit takes place before Lord of the Rings, so that makes it a prequel. Nope, nope, nope. There's a very specific definition for a prequel. And that is, a prequel is a sequel. Now, it takes place before the first installment of whatever story you're telling or whatever franchise you're working through, but it is still a sequel. You must watch the stuff that actually happens later in the timeline. You must watch that stuff first in order to understand and, and really absorb what's happening in this sequel, which takes place before, right? So that is a prequel. And that is what Peter Jackson turned The Hobbit into. And that is not what 
what The Hobbit is. The Hobbit is not a prequel to Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is a sequel to The Hobbit. And that, there's a very important distinction there. And basically, what this allows you to do, if you were so inclined, is you could kind of, sort of, half-ass view The Hobbit as being now it's a legitimate predecessor to Lord of the Rings. It's not a prequel to Lord of the Rings. It's now the official predecessor to Lord of the Rings. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, you know, and now I don't think it's quite perfect because, you know, there are, there is, there is expositions. Uh, there, there, there are instances of exposition in Lord of the Rings and especially Fellowship of the Ring that kind of give you entree into the world of Middle Earth. And honestly, the, the Tolkien editor is kind of at Peter Jackson's mercy on that. He can't change these scenes. But what he can do is basically better position The Hobbit as a legitimate predecessor now to Lord of the Rings. And in relation to that, I actually find that it's actually quite successful. It's very entertaining. And you don't really lose too much of anything. I mean, I've... Like I say, I'm more familiar with An Unexpected Journey than I am the other two, but it doesn't, unless, you, unless you've watched An Unexpected Journey recently, you wouldn't necessarily guess just how much of that movie has actually been cut out. So all in all, I think this is one of those very few fan edits that's actually worth taking the time to watch. So anyway. I guess what I'm saying is for those of you who are so inclined, you should think about checking into this, right? So you can find it at tolkieneditor.wordpress.com, where I suppose what you, what you could also do is just Google The Hobbit Tolkien Edit, and probably it's going to come up that way too. But either way, I think what you're going what, what to see is that this is actually a very effective predecessor to Lord of the Rings and you can actually watch this before Lord of the Rings and get all or most of what you need in order to follow this story so all in all I think it's actually pretty successful like I say it's not perfect from a technical standpoint but it is actually I think really good so anyway so I think that's pretty much it for me in this segment so uh, what I'm going to do is just play a couple of promos and I'll be right back talk about something else after these messages. Adventures of Superman on the big screen and the small screen, starting with the Fleischer Shorts. The Kirk Allen movie serials. Superman and the Mole Men. The 1950s television series, The Adventures of Superman. 
Christopher Reeve movies, Lois and Clark, Superman the Animated Series, and more. Come check out the Man of Screen podcast at themanofscreen.podomatic.com. Another issue of the Spectre to talk about. Told you I'd come back to it at some point or another. But anyway, I guess just for, I guess the sake of, the sake of context, the last time I talked about a Spectre comic was back in episode number 186. This was the Spectre number one. And I guess just in the interest of, I don't know, accuracy, I suppose. It needs to be said that this is, that the, the Spectre comic that I talked about before, this was, this, this was the Spectre number one, and the cover date of that was December of 1992. So, just for accuracy's sake there. Now, as to this comic, this is obviously then the Spectre number two. And... Basically, the reason, for those of you who are coming in late, the reason that I selected this Spectre series to talk about as opposed to any other Spectre series is specifically because of the fact that the writer of this series is John Ostrander. And basically, what I've been given to believe is that his work on the Spectre is basically second to none. And so, for that reason, it seemed like if you're going to... If what you want to do is read Spectre comics, why not go for the best, you know? So that's that's why this is being done in this way. So hopefully that all makes sense. Now, I got to tell you that, you know, the whole idea of doing a, a sort of, I can't even really call it superhero, but a sort of uh, horror comic, maybe that's the best way to do it, but or maybe that's the best way to phrase it, but the allure of talking about this is that it's kind of off the beaten path a little bit in terms of my usual subject matter. This has superpowers or paranormal powers. It's got a cape and, you know, a little bit of a secret identity, I suppose, in some ways, but it's got, and this is the point, it's got the basic trappings of the superhero genre on the one hand. But on the other hand, I... You know, even before I actually started reading Spectre comics, it never occurred to me that this was a conventional superhero, you know? And indeed, in this series especially, he is not a conventional superhero, but all in good time. Like I say, this is the Spectre that I'm going to be uh, talking about. This is the Spectre, apparently this is Volume 3, but the Spectre Volume 3, Number 2, cover date is January of 1993. Cover price is a buck seventy-five. Now, that cover price actually got me a little bit curious. You know, was that the going rate for comics at the time? That is to say, at the beginning of 1993. So I did some checking into that, and when you take out Image Comics, basically, and I think their their gen, their typical price was a buck ninety-five. When you take out Image Comics you know, sort of premium comics, because, you know, at the time they were very high quality uh, printing that they were using, and so their comics tended to cost more. So when you take that out, and then you also take out 
outliers like enhanced covers as they were all the craze in 1993 you take outliers out and the probably the median comic book price is a buck fifty right and I base this primarily on the Superman books that were going on at the time and for those of you who don't remember they were pretty much balls deep in the reign of the Superman story at the time and Apart from Action Comics number 687, Man of Steel number 22, Superman number 78, and Adventures of Superman number 501, which is to say the introductory chapters of Reign of the Superman, there really weren't a whole lot of enhanced covers in Reign of the Superman. I mean, pretty much it, the storyline started with enhanced covers and it ended with an enhanced cover. But by and large, there really weren't a whole lot of enhanced covers going on with Reign of the Superman. And so, to me, the buck fifty cover price that that uh, Superman comics had at that time, you know, for just conventional standard length comics, is pretty much normative. So, my point in saying uh, all of this is to say that this dollar seventy-five cover price for the Spectre Volume 3, Number 2, is a bit higher than usual. Put it that way. So, anyway, as to the credits, though, executive editor is Jeanette Kahn, cover artist is Glenn Fabry, writer is John Ostrander, penciler is Tom Mandrake, inker is Tom Mandrake, colorist is Digital Chameleon, letterer is Todd Klein, and editor is Dan Rasplin. Summary is as follows. At a beach house on Long Island, the Spectre finds a ghost who keeps reliving her own death. He believes the ghost cannot rest until her killer is found, and he takes it upon himself to find out who did it. Angry, he explodes through the roof of the house. Elsewhere, in New York City, Amy Bitterman goes to Jim Corrigan's old office, which she finds deserted. As she's leaving, she meets Madame Xanadu, who is also looking for Corrigan, and so Amy and Madame Xanadu agree to let each other know if the other finds him. The next morning, Corrigan shows up at the beach house as the police are investigating last night's explosion, which is to say, the specter wrecking shop on the house. A cop tells him the house belonged to Jacqueline Connolly, husband of Mike Landau and mistress of Bill Martindale, the president of a video game company. Landau was convicted of killing Jacqueline, and now he's awaiting execution. The Spectre visits Landau in prison, enters his soul, and finds out that Landau is innocent. The Spectre leaves, but Landau is so scared and show, so shaken by this experience that he hangs himself in his prison cell. Corrigan then visits Martindale in his office, enters his soul, and discovers that Martindale played no part whatsoever in Jacqueline's death either. But because he's a coward, he'd been letting people think that he was involved so that he could be looked upon as dangerous. Corrigan finally visits Jacqueline's grave and meets her twin sister, Judith. Judith doesn't want to help Corrigan, so the Spectre enters her soul and discovers that Judith was the one who killed Jacqueline. It was an accident, Judith says, and she only meant to confront Jacqueline about the shame that her lifestyle was bringing to their family. Judith informs Corrigan that Mike Landau hung himself in his cell. Then, the Spectre sends Judith over the cliff to her death as retribution for sending an innocent man to jail. Corrigan then returns to the beach house to tell Jacqueline that he found her murderer, and he only discovers that her ghost still can't rest. Jim realizes even the specter can't free the dead from their remorse. I have failed to understand. The next morning, the NYPD discover another Reaver killing, and they also fish out of the river a 50-year-old barrel filled with cement. To be continued. Although not likely in this episode. So, what did I think? Well, I got to tell you, one of the things that I think I enjoy about the Spectre is how it kind of gives a very horror movie type of pulp book type of uh, feel to it. And 
that's a kind of a difficult thing to quantify because of the fact that first off horror movie is a little bit subjective and as far as i guess just sort of pulp atmosphere pulps were primarily prose novels and so really something only looks pulpy in the eye of the beholder right so when i say that the art has this sort of pulpy type of look to it Keep in mind, there's nothing about that that I can rationally or intellectually justify. I'm just saying that's what I'm bringing to the table, you know? In my mind's eye, when I read, I don't, for example, old shadow pulps, this kind of liney, scratchy, hatchy type of uh, Tom Mandrake art, this is basically the world that I sort of envision in my mind, you know? The fog never really goes away, and there are no clean lines really anywhere on, on, well, the page in my mind's eye. So I'm mixing a bunch of different metaphors there. there. There's no clean line to anything. Everything is just sort of blotty, scratchy, liney, hatchy. And honestly, by all rights, this is an art style that I should absolutely fucking hate. Hate, 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 hate. But I don't, because number one, Mandrake just does it so fucking well. Number two, it's the perfect accompaniment to the story. And I just eat this art style up. Now look, I'll be the first to admit, you could not draw The Flash this way. You couldn't draw Spider-Man this way. But for some reason, it perfectly fits what John Ostrander is up to with the the script you know so all of this it just it works really well for me another thing that i kind of like about this and this is getting into page one now there's there's a quote from yates uh, yates's purgatory on the first page it says but there are some that do not care what's gone what's left the souls in purgatory that come back to habitations and familiar spots and Number one, that's just a really fucking dark piece of writing that, you know, by Yates. And I mean all of it, not just the little fragment here, but I mean the whole thing. If you guys have ever read Yates's Purgatory, it's some fucking dark stuff, guys. But it's interesting how that comes into play very heavily in this story, but not in necessarily an obvious kind of heavy-handed way. That definitely foreshadows what's coming, but it's not obnoxious about it. I mean, sometimes... And, you know, guys, as much as I enjoy Jeff Johns' work on Green Lantern, Jeff Johns is one of those writers who's not particularly subtle. I mean, when you read a Jeff Johns comic, there are instances of plenty where he puts up a flashing neon sign. Here's the foreshadowing! And you don't really get that as much with John Ostrander, you know? And I appreciate the fact that he doesn't necessarily beat you over the head with all of this. I mean, like again, if you're familiar with the totality of Yeats's Purgatory, then you can see maybe some other resonance that this story has with that. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Purgatory wasn't a major influence on this script and possibly even this entire series, but certainly this specific issue that we're talking about here, Spectre number two. It wouldn't be a great surprise to find out that John Ostrander is a little bit of a Yates fanboy vis-a-vis -vis the Spectre. So, I don't know. I don't know if Ostrander's ever actually talked about that in public, but I'd be interested to know if he ever has. So, if any of you listening to this, if you happen to know for sure, send me an email let me know, because I'd be interested to, to hear about that and read that interview if he's ever talked about it. But anyway, I just, like I say, I dig this art, and like I say, I think that... One of the main reasons that this art in general, but especially page one, both really work for me is, again, the same reason that the shadow works for me. I mean, this is, I don't know as I'd go so far as to call this, you know, very like Mike Kaluta type art, although maybe, but it just seems to me that this is a, this is the type of page that would have looked, I think, pretty well at home in that shadow comic that DC published in the 1970s, or basically any shadow comic that that uh, Dark Horse published in the 1990s. 
either one of those I think would have worked. You know, this would look very much at home there, you know? So, geez, I just friggin' love this art. I mean, you can't even escape the fucking fog. The atmosphere is just so thick. It's impenetrable. And, you know, I happen to think that it's probably, it's got to be like the artist in a thousand who can do this kind of scratchy, foggy, atmosphere-y type of pulpy art, for lack of a better way to put it. And, ah, uh, Mandrake's just one of the best. I mean, it's just like this thing just kind of screams horror movie on the one hand, but it's got its feet set firmly in the DC universe. So I just fucking dig this. This is just, this is amazing. And it is a little bit coincidental that Jim Corrigan just happens to be taking a walk along the pier when he happens coincidentally to see the ghost of somebody who keeps reliving her murder over and over and over again. And I guess my my answer to that, it would be that if that bothers you, then it's also got to kind of bother you that in Casablanca, Rick just happens to get the letters of transit on the same night that the leader of the French resistance just coincidentally wanders into his bar needing letters of transit, or that Michael Corleone just happened to come back from World War II right, at, right as Barzini was making his big play against the Corleone family. Or in Superman the movie, Superman just happens to make his public debut right as Lex is getting ready to launch his real estate scheme. I mean, this is just parallel storytelling, and, and things like that don't they shouldn't bother you. I mean, if look, if something like that is enough to take you out of the story, just ruin the story for you, I don't know, but I'm guessing that there are tons of comics, tons of TV shows, tons of movies that have just got to royally piss you off. And I don't know. I mean, it's just... yeah. How strict a standard is that really, you know? So it just, it just kind of bothers me when that whole coincidence thing, when that really throws some people off. I mean, I don't understand why that's bothersome to some people. But then there are a lot of things I don't get. The French, for example. So anyway, this is... Page two isn't exactly, you know, the pinup piece that page one is, but then that's not exactly any page two's responsibility. Page one is supposed to be the pinup piece. Page two is... In a weird kind of way, that's where the storyline actually starts in most comics, you know? So, anyway. So, basically what we get on this and then the next couple of pages is basically the Spectre being a scary horror movie type of character, doing his thing and basically just tearing up the scenery, right? And, you know, one of the weird kind of artistic decisions that Mandrake made and in crafting this series, or at least the comics that I've read so far, is that he typically erred on the side of of the Spectre's natural form, being basically humanoid, wearing only his grippies, and then he's got the the cloak that he the green cloak that he wears as the rest of his quote unquote costume, you know? And it you know, guys, this is just one of those things that I've always thought looked kinda goofy. Even on a comic book page, I always thought this looked a little bit goofy. And I always wondered why it was that Mandrake didn't want to give the Spectre a little bit more of a... Sort of like a fuzzy type of form to him. Does that make sense? You know, sort of a... An almost sort of like disembodied, misty type of outline you know not necessarily a, a a solid line humanoid figure something a little bit more abstract because if you think about it the specter isn't really a person per se he's a concept he's an idea he's an he's a force in, in a way and so i don't think that the specter would be this big a slave to form whereby he would want to have a humanoid body. He might want to have a human host, and so you could have like a vaguely human-shaped cloud or something, but it doesn't... It's one of those things that it never completely made sense to me why he would choose 
Because he can choose whatever form he wants, so why would he choose what looks to be a sort of a flesh and blood, vaguely human type of body, you know? It's just one of those things that doesn't make sense to me. And the only thing I can figure, the only way I can kind of rationalize this, is to figure that maybe Tom Mandrake did want to have a little bit more of a, a sort of an abstract type of line style or model for the Spectre, but somebody higher up the food chain said, nope, nope, he needs to be recognizable as the Spectre, even though that's a kind of a goofy type of look for any character. So, I don't know. I mean, somebody had to had to have been thinking that it doesn't he doesn't need to look this way, but for some reason he looks this way anyway, and it's just it's one of those things I've always been kind of curious about. I don't know if it's worth the amount of time I've uh, that, that I've spent talking about it, but I've always sort of wondered about it. So, one of the kind of neat things that comes out of all of this, though, is that on page four, you've got the Spectre, and what he says is, You cannot stop. You cannot escape. No more than I can. Does your death lie unpunished? Is your murder unavenged? You cannot tell me. And the reason this is kind of an insightful little bit of dialogue is because of the fact that, you know, the Spectre is all-powerful. He's not necessarily all-knowing. He has to find answers for these things on his own. And there are instances where the process of that has got to be... I'm just going to say a little bit of a pain in the balls for him, you know? So it's just... it. It's just an important reminder of what exactly his limitations truly are. So, I don't know. Anyway, so elsewhere, this this is page five. You've got Amy Bitterman. She swings by Corrigan's detective agency. Madame Xanadu's there, and then they have their little moment. And honestly, this isn't really eh, important unto itself, like in this story. I get the idea this is setting up actually something for the future. So I guess that's just a little something something to be aware of. Now, getting into page eight, this is the moment when Jim Corrigan meets with the police officer who's investigating the explosion at the house that was caused by the specter crashing through the ceiling. And this is one of those times, I don't know if John Ostrander meant to do this, but this is actually one of the times when he actually, he did throw me off of the case a little bit. He threw me off the trail. Usually, these types of whodunit stories, which, let's face it, that's what this story is, for all of the paranormal elements, for all of the horror elements, for all of the pulpy style, this is ultimately a whodunit story. Spectre number two. This is ultimately a whodunit story, right? And so what the reader is supposed to be asking himself as he proceeds through all of this is who in the cast of characters could possibly have some type of a motivation for doing all of this? And this is one of those times, like I say, where I don't know if John Ostrander intended people to do this. He intended to throw the, the, the reader off. But you only have a limited cast of characters in most whodunit stories, right? That's just the nature of whodunit stories. And generally speaking, anybody who's not in the main cast, which is to say any type of a guest character or something like that who has a large speaking role, generally speaking, you can kind of figure that's probably the guilty party. And so I kind of figured that, you know what, it's going to come out in the story that actually this cop... Brian, this cop, is actually, he's the one that actually uh, killed, what's her name, Connolly, right? Jacqueline Connolly. That's going to be the big twist reveal of this story. Which, obviously, isn't what happened. So, like I say, I don't know if that was done on purpose, but it was nevertheless effective, and I, I, I kind of appreciated that. When we start getting into a little bit deeper into the story, though, this is actually pages 9, 10, and then so on from there. There's this moment where the Spectre pays a visit to Michael Landau in prison. And 
basically enters his soul and tries to ascertain, you know, this man's guilt. After absolving him of the crime, the specter the specter basically leaves the scene and continues his investigation. Pretty much the instant he leaves, Landau basically figures, you know what, I've had enough, I've seen enough, I've been through enough. Nothing. Nothing at all is worth this. And so he hangs himself with his bed sheets in his cell. And this is the first major occasion in this story of the specter. I can't see, I don't want to say failing because I don't know if that's really the sort of best way to put it, but this is the specter coming up short, you know, he's not necessarily here to protect the innocent. I mean, I guess he would if he could, but that's not specifically his mandate. His mandate is to punish the guilty. And that having been said, though, I get the impression he wouldn't have wanted Landau to hang himself, you know? That is, at the very least, a major setback, or would be a major setback in the Spectre's mind, you know? But that is what happened, you know? And so... This is the first major occasion, or actually, you know what, maybe the second occasion, because, you know, it's not like Jacqueline Connolly was forthcoming about why exactly it is that she's doing with her doing what, what she's doing earlier in the story. So now that I think about it, this is actually the second time that the specter has come up short in this story. And this isn't the last time that such a thing is going to happen either. But we'll we'll come back to that later. Next Starting on page 13, we basically get, we, we begin the sequence where the specter basically has it out with William Martindale, enters his soul, and basically sees the truth. You know, first, how Martindale sees himself, and then what, in fact, Martindale truly is, you know, and... In the inner core of Martindale's being, he views himself as a conqueror. You know, this captain of industry. He's Mr. Important. He's a fucking big shot. You know, he's surrounded by gold and scantily clad women. And he he considers himself to be sort of a Viking, you know, and he's on the warpath, taking what he wants, doing what he wants, fucking who, who he wants, etc. And everyone else, anyone who gets in his way can all fuck off. That's how he sees himself. What he truly is, though, is a fucking loser. This guy is a joke. He's nothing. You know, he lives in filth. He is filth. Everything that he believes is wonderful about himself is actually fucking trash. He's the king of the shithill, you know? And his self-esteem, his self-image is so fragile that he's actually... sneakily implied that he actually is responsible for the murder just so other people will think that he's some kind of tough guy he's a big shot you know and he may kill people who piss him off so don't piss him off you know and i mean this is just a sad sack of a human being i mean you know i cannot imagine somebody whose sense of self-worth is this fucking fragile that he would indirectly take credit for somebody else's murder just so people would respect him. I mean, that is fucking low. You know, what kind of a loser? You're not even a loser anymore. It's like, you're a loser's... You're the you're the guy that the loser bullies, right? You're the, the victim. The victim's bully. You know, the guy that gets bullied all the time, you're the guy he bullies, you know? I mean, you're just a fucking joke, man. And anyway, it's... That's not lost on him either. He is basically living in this denial. He knows deep down inside what he truly is. He just refuses to admit it. He even says it. No, no, I'm a raider, a reaver, a ruler. And the specter just doesn't even have time for that kind of fucking noise. And he just basically just dismantles this guy, verbally dismantles this guy. And once he's, once he's figured it out, he says, Nothing. You played no part in her death. 
yet you let everyone think that perhaps you did. And I've dropped little hints, illusions here and there, just so some might think you dangerous. What a pathetic creature you really are. And he just, just fucking verbally skewers the guy. He never hurts him. He just basically, just like I say, verbally skewers the guy into oblivion. And he's lying, crying on the floor of his office saying, No, I'm, I'm a raider, a reaver, a ruler. I'm, uh, I'm, uh. And the guy, he's just, he's fucking lost. He doesn't even understand it. I mean, dude, you lost. You know, and I mean, that's just fucking, I, how sad do you have to be as a person, you know, to be Martindale? I mean, my gosh. So anyway, wow. Anyway, so after that, we get the big climax of the story. The truth comes out. Judith Connolly is, uh, is in fact, the real killer as it comes out. Uh, this is on uh, page 18, that Judith basically confesses, or starts confessing. This whole sequence just starts right here. She basically confesses to the murder, but the thing is, we never really see how exactly she did it. I mean, you can, it's almost like you can infer quite a lot from this, in fact, but you never actually see what she did or how she did it. Because when you really think about it, there's a limit to which that actually matters. The fact is, she's guilty. She confesses her guilt. And so, as penance for her crime, the specter basically kicks her off a cliff. You know? And that's basically the end of it. And before all of this happens, it comes out that Landau basically hung himself in prison. So now... The Spectre is aware of that and that he's come up short. And then later he pays a visit to Connolly's ghost, Jacqueline Connolly's ghost, and basically says, you can rest easy now. Only to find out that, you know what? No, it's not that easy. She's still suffering from the remorse of the whole thing. And that's something that the Spectre can't help her with. Her issue is that it's not a matter of injustice. Because if it was, the specter exercising justice, executing justice, that would be enough to free her. But no, this is a deeper sadness on her part, you know, the loss of it. And she basically needs a degree of comfort that the specter fundamentally cannot provide. And... Corrigan even says as much to himself. He says, it isn't anger that drives you, is it, Judith Connolly? No, it's anger that drives me. I'll never know what makes you relive the moment of your death over and over again. Those who might have understood are all dead or broken. I solved your murder, but I failed to solve your mystery. Even the specter can't free the dead from their remorse. I have failed to understand. And this is a very interesting insight into Corrigan and the Spectre. And it, again, it addresses the contours of the limitations of what exactly the Spectre can and cannot do, where his power begins and ends. You know, what Jacqueline... Uh, yeah, what Jacqueline Connolly needs... It's basically something that the Spectre is fundamentally incapable of providing based on who he is. And it's also something that Jim Corrigan is incapable of providing just because he's so lost and broken himself. You know, he is maybe not the only person in the world who can't help Jacqueline Connolly, but he's definitely one of them. You know, there is literally nothing he can do to set her at peace. And that hurts him on a very deep level. It hurts the specter on a very deep level. And it hurts Jim Corrigan on a very deep, personal, human level. And the helplessness of all of this, that yes, he can, he can exercise justice. He can, 
He can bring retribution, but that doesn't necessarily fix every single problem. You know, the Spectre has, to kind of draw an analogy, the Spectre has one hell of a hammer, but not necessarily every problem in the world is a nail. You know, there are certain things that he's not going to be able to do. And the realization of that weighs on him, you know? And that's just powerful writing. And, you know, my the assumption that I always had about the Spectre when I was a kid was that basically he's the Punisher with superpowers, you know? That's pretty much who the Spectre is. And because of that, there's really not a whole lot that you can do with that character to make him engaging and fun to read, you know? Look, if you just enjoy, I guess, the torture porn aspect of criminals basically getting their butts handed to them, well, this may be a fun comic book for you. But if what you want is a story or, or kind of layered, textured, nuanced characters, then the Spectre just isn't for you. And that was the assumption that I had about the Punisher as a kid. And it was certainly the assumption that I always had about the Spectre as a kid. And what John Ostrander is doing here in this story is basically showing us that, no, there is a lot more to this guy that makes him tick than I ever thought possible. You know, basically every single page of this comic book, it's almost like it it was directed to 12-year-old Magnus saying, no, you're wrong. This p page one proves it. No, you're wrong. Page two proves it. No, you're wrong. Page three proves it. So on and so on, right? And to me, that's the real revelation of this series, that it does so fucking much with a character that by all rights, I'd always, you know, rightly or wrongly, I'd always assumed could only be a cardboard cutout, but is in fact so fucking much more than that, you know? There's so much more going on with Jim Corrigan, going on with the Spectre. And it's a little bit of, it's a little bit reductionist, honestly, to say that, you know, he can only be this or he can only be that. In the hands of, a, of the right writer, any character can be absolutely amazing. It's just a matter of finding that writer and then getting him on that book, writing that character. And ultimately, that's really what separates the men from the boys when it comes to, when it comes to writing comics, you know, at least in my opinion, you know? So... You know, all around, I just, I really dig this issue, but I, I really just dig this entire, this entire series. I mean, this to me is, it's just, it's, it's almost like the Punisher Max and what Garth Ennis was able to do in showing you just how fucking awesome Frank Castle really is as a character. And the same thing I think is going on here in, in the Spectre where John Ostrander is basically showing you how friggin' awesome the Spectre is. You know, and it's uh, on the one hand, I mean, yeah, it is kind of me having a little bit of humble pie here and having to go back on assumptions that I had when I was a kid. But then I'd kind of shaken those assumptions long ago. So I guess it's not the total humiliation that it might be. But anyway, just all in all, this is just a really fun. Well, I can't say fun. This is a really good story. It's just it's got that supernaturally horror-y, pulpy type of, you know, vibe to it. And I just eat this up with a spoon. I love it. This is amazing. And I don't know when, but I am going to come back to the Spectre at some time in the future. I mean, I said that when I talked about the Spectre number one, that I didn't know when, but I would come back to this at some point or another in the future. And same thing's true here. Don't know when it's going to happen, but at some point I am coming back to this. So just keep an ear out for that. But I think that's basically it uh, for me this week. So Bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
everybody, Magnus here. You know, a lot of people make fun of 1990s comics. The way they tell it, you'd almost think they weren't avidly collecting those same comics themselves. But me? I've got a real soft spot for 90s comics, and so, starting in December of 2017, I'm launching a six-part mega-series called Cover Date, January 1991. The idea is to talk about, well, comics with a January 1991 cover date. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is going back to January 1991 for a look back at what comics were really like. Is it really as bad as people say? Well, there's only one way to find out. I want you to test drive some 1990s comics along with me. Who knows? You just might find something to fall in love with all over again. So, come back to January 1991 with Trennis Magnus for a fond, festive, frolicking trip down memory lane. The fun starts in December 2017 only at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. You can find Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com or by searching in iTunes. Or, I guess you could search on Google if you're feeling really lazy. Cover date. January 1991 because 1990s comics are awesome. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. 
The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trenis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy.